I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Hilary Lips, is an emerita professor in social psychology at Radford University, where she founded the Center for Gender Studies, was its director from 1989 to 2015, and was also the chair of the Department of Psychology from 2003 to 2015. She's the author of a variety of books, including Women, Men, and the Psychology of Power, Sex and Gender and Introduction, A New Psychology of Women, Gender, Culture, and Ethnicity, and Gender, The Basics. She also co-authored The Psychology of Sex Differences with Nina Colwell, published in 1978, which explored multiple contributors to sex differences, including genetics, hormones, and social learning, attributable in large measure to differential power dynamics rather than stable inherited traits. So Hillary, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. Great to be here. So first of all, I appreciate your willingness to do this interview, even though gender has become an at times uncomfortably contentious topic. Let's agree at the outset that we'll do our best to convey the complexity of the topic, the knowledge of which is necessarily tentative, and the causality of which is multifaceted. We'll also recognize that while we can't completely avoid some generalizations, most of the time what we're talking about is embedded in statistical differences with usually more variation within than between the sexes. Finally, later in our conversation, we'll do our best to shed light on controversial areas such as sexual orientation and gender fluidity rather than adding more heat. So is there anything that you'd like to add about how we want to proceed with the conversation? No, I think you've summed it up pretty well. I think that it's such a complex topic. It's hard not to stray into something that will upset somebody, but is to try and understand a very complex and interesting set of issues. All right. So hopefully we'll, we'll be forgiven if we rankle somebody. Yes. <laughs> okay. So before we dive right in, tell us a little bit about your origins in of your interest in social psychology of gender particularly given that you came of age at an exciting time academically, politically, and socially regarding gender? Actually, it was in graduate school. I had already decided to be a social psychologist. So I, and I also, as I entered graduate school, I was starting to be a feminist. So I had read the stuff people were reading then and realized that women were in a position that was maybe not ideal. Um, but I, I didn't really see any connection to psychology for some reason until I read Naomi Weistein's paper called Psychology Constructs the Female. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but she wrote it in 1969. And Naomi Weistein was a psychologist herself, a neuroscientist, actually. And she wrote this paper that was made it just blindingly obvious that psychology was ignoring social context when they talked about gender. She, of course, in the paper, she quoted a lot of really horribly sexist comments from big name psychologists at the time. But the most important part of her paper for me was that she showed over and over again how we behave in connection with social expectations. Social expectations change so much of how humans behave. And she argued very strongly that women and men were expected to be very different and thus we are very different. And psychology hadn't even tried to untangle those things, what the real, quote, real differences 
versus the ones produced by context. This is in contrast to the inherent differences that are, would, be, would have been biologically determined. Yes. And psychologists at the time were saying women have this deep inner need to have children. The main thing she looks for is the, a good partner and so on. And that was all built in, something about women that caused that. And there was the idea that it could be caused by the environment. Yeah, so it's odd that we don't look to the animal world to, to show how active fathers are, and they seem to have an investment too, whether it's birds or even seahorses. <laughs> yes, especially seahorses. <laughs> the mother isn't even there. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about what makes gender both a compelling and a, and a times difficult topic. I, I think it's well understood. I think that humans love to make distinctions and to categorize as shown, for example, by gender designations in most languages. English is not that gendered or somewhat gendered, but there are other languages where every verb, practically almost verb cases, are gendered. And also it seems that the lens of gender is baked into our automatic visual perceptions. For instance, if somebody looks tall, it depends on their gender. If you see a taller than average woman, they look tall, even though they're still shorter than the average man, and vice versa. And I think the same goes with voice. A man with a high voice might still be lower than an average woman's voice, but sounds like a high voice. I'm wondering if for many people, these gender categories and the traditional meanings, there's a desire for them to stay fixed. And I think as we'll talk about today, they're not all that fixed. But I'm wondering what is the supposed polarity between personality characteristics, and this is going to be probably a review for most listeners, but what's the brief summary of of this polarity and and where does it break down and fall short of reality? If you're talking about personality characteristics, um, there are stereotypes, um, very clear stereotypes that women are uh, warm, nurturing, caring on that end of the spectrum. Men tend to be more ambitious, task-focused, aggressive. And this feeds into what you were saying about expectations, different expectations for women and men, because, for example, a woman who acts in a quite assertive way might be regarded as transgressing the behavior that she's supposed to engage in as a woman, because that's a masculine behavior. So whereas a man doing the same behaviors would not be even noticed, perhaps. Yeah, so I, I think it's almost like an op art situation. If you go to a Museum of Modern Art in New York or other places where the same color looks different depending on what the background is. Yes, yes. So the same level of decisiveness might look average when seen in a man and, and above average when seen in a woman, even though the actual level of decisiveness, if you could measure that, would be the same. And we have different labels for it. So we. We label women as pushy, just as an example, sometimes when they um, are assertive. And I I don't know when I've ever heard a man labeled as pushy, actually. That's not an adjective that you often hear applied to a man. So it it suggests that, again, our expectations are very different. Yeah, I thought you were going to use the B word instead of the P word here. (laughs) I didn't know I could use it. Yeah, I think community radio is a little bit more forgiving, I think, than uh, other forms of radio. So one of the theorists you mentioned in your book is Judith Butler, who developed and articulated an idea that gender is not something that individuals have, to reiterate what you were just saying, but rather something they do. 
so it's that they it's not just that they're influenced socially but they have to enact the way that they're influenced yes because we have pretty strong messages about how we should act and i think it's very easy to fall into performing gender as that's the term she uses i think trying to fit the category and as you said earlier these categories are pretty important to us from babyhood we learn that these categories are very important and we try to fit them i think where social psychology comes in as opposed to sociology is that you can include the internal feelings and thoughts of the individual as well as the social influences these kind of things are enforced by on the outside by social shaming let's say and by the inside by feeling either embarrassment or shame yes or just wanting to do the best job you can of being the person you're supposed to be it's not none of us are shaped like seen or something we are active participants in how we turn out so that's the positive uh, motivations but i would think also the negative just speaking from personal experience i, I i'm reluctant to wear a dress even at a costume party <laughs> because of how it looks and I, I think it's silly. I think I should feel, be able to do that at a costume party. The rabbi of our community dressed as a woman for a holiday of Purim in high heels and lipstick. <laughs> and it was really striking. People do feel really sometimes uncomfortable if they accidentally violate these boundaries. And there was Somewhere in one of my books, I wrote this example that I saw on television in the old days of Candid Camera. Do you remember? Where they would set up a situation. They set up two phone booths. Those were the days when there were phone booths. They labeled one men and they labeled the other one woman. And they found that men would only go into the, the men's one and women would only go into the women's one. And if somebody, if somebody was occupying the one that was labeled for their sex they would like pace around outside even those empty phone booths right next door they just wouldn't cross that boundary and another interesting example that somebody wrote about was in the early australian in the days of the early australian colonization there would be a group of indigenous australians who were given a bunch of clothing and the men would put on the dresses. That's what you told me. <laughs> they thought they looked great. And then they would run into some white Westerners and they would be horrified and say, oh no, those are women's clothes. And these men would just shed them very quickly and be very embarrassed. So it was, yeah, you're right. It's well, That's amazing. And, and of course the specifics about dress change. I, I understand that pink used to be a masculine color. And of course, we know from the Greeks that they wore togas. And what's a toga if not a dress? <laughs> I thought it was funny last night on the big welcome for Lionel Messi in Miami. Everybody's wearing pink. His t-shirt number 10 is a pink shirt and all his fans are wearing pink. And I thought, wow, that's a real change. Yeah, it's a completely arbitrary. So I'm wondering if there's any kind of difference in how things are seen now compared to earlier on in your career. Were complementary qualities seen as needed for survival 
as an outgrowth of the historical division of labor, which I think has been challenged somewhat recently. Home and rearing of children, young children, especially young children, would be mostly by women and exploration, hunting and war, mostly by men, with some exceptions, but in, in general. And then this got extrapolated to the expectation that men tend to be more dominant, directive and controlling, whereas women tend to be more submissive, conciliatory and cooperative. Women are viewed as more expressive, qualities that emphasize interaction with other people and men toward action, leadership and accomplishment. And I'm wondering, is, is that an accepted kind of assumption about the development of, of these differences? I think many people think that there are some roots of these differences in those that early division of labor, although, as you say, that division of labor may not have been universal, but I guess none of us knows for absolutely sure how those differences developed, but even lasting until fairly recently, I think people have assumed that women need certain qualities because they still are the ones looking after the children, despite now we have some daycare and we have more shared parenting, but still most of that is done by women. So I think that people often feel that is something that helped create and, sh and continues to help create and shape these differences. And then, and then from a man's point of view, let's say you're a man's man, it goes out into the world and is facing a lot of tough situations all day long of being challenged and um, being pushed to the limit in various ways, that there's a, a need from a man's point of view to come home and have that hearth, have the, the support and a situation where that's not competitive, that's supportive, and their needs are going to be taken care of. It, it suggests that the expression, every woman needs a good wife, that wouldn't that be great for everyone to have that? But I'm wondering if that's part of the investment in gender roles, at least from the man's point of view. I'm sure it is. Yeah, everybody would want that. Everybody would want to come home to some nice, safe, quiet place where dinner is already cooked and no, nothing is much expected. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be wonderful. And yes, so there, there will be, if people are living that way, there will be a pretty strong investment in that status quo. Why would you voluntarily give that up? You can give it up because you think it's more fair, but that doesn't make it comfortable. But this whole role thing, it's so interesting because we, we are reinforced in these roles in, and in these qualities by the roles that we're pushed into. If you are a woman, and your job, at least temporarily, is to focus on your family and raise children, then you, there are certain qualities you need to do that well, right? You need to be empathic. You need to be nurturing. You also need to be a heck of a good manager to keep the house running and so on. But you will need those particular qualities. And then so you will develop those qualities more and more. And other people who see you will then see you with those qualities. And that reinforces their idea. That's what women are like. This is Alice Eagley's social roles theory, basically. Mm -hmm. So it just keeps going, self-reinforcing over and over again. And, and I would imagine from the woman's point of view, maybe back before there was much flexibility in gender roles, that there could be a lot of pride about running the household and being responsible for nurturing the next generation. I mean, what could be more important? Absolutely. I think there was and has been a lot of pride and still is among women who do that because it's 
a lot of work to do it well. And But I, I do think that uh, one of the things that people haven't recognized about women's traditional homemaker role is that it also required that sort of CEO type managing the house, making sure everybody gets to their appointments on time, making sure the shopping is done and there's food in the refrigerator and all that stuff. And of course, in the old days, before all the modern appliances, just the basics would take a lot of hours, just getting water and making a fire and washing the clothes. Everything was done manually. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be incredibly time consuming. So you also talk about benevolent versus hostile sexism. So explain to us what a benevolent sexism would look like and, and what its effects would be. Well, benevolent sexism is like um, you think of the other person in kind ways, you, you like them, you're fond of them, and you think of their qualities as being positive, but they're still stereotypic. It's condescending in a way. So if a man is a benevolent, has a benevolent sexist attitude towards women, he will think of women as maybe nice people, gentle people who need a lot of help, people who need protection, and so on. And for a woman, that's not doesn't feel all bad, right? And that's I think that's why it's a very difficult kind of sexism to recognize. It's very easy to recognize hostile sexism, because people say, oh, this woman is a bitch, or this woman, she has no place, women have no place in this setting or so on. That's clearly hostile sexism. It's exclusionary. It's angry. But benevolent sexism, people think, what's wrong with that? You know, he's nice to women. He's protective of women. Why should that be a problem? And many of my students, when I've talked about this, have said, I don't see a problem with that. That seems good to me. And then if you flip it, benevolent, a benevolent sexist uh, woman who thinks of men in a benevolently sexist way would think men, they're okay, but there's a lot of stuff they just can't handle. They need looking after. You can't trust them to do certain kinds of things. You have to protect their feelings, their ego, and so on, because they're very fragile. So it's an exaggeration of maybe... It's a historical vulnerability, because women have historically been vulnerable for a number of reasons. But yeah, it's condescending, basically. It's taking away women's agency, in a sense. So I guess when a much older man calls you dear or honey or sweetie, you can almost forgive it because it's an older man, maybe. <laughs> but if it's not, much less, yeah. Okay, so we talked about benevolent sexism, hostile sexism is fairly obvious. One thing that was not as obvious in, that, that you talk about in your book is that there's actually quite a high rate of violence, not just from men to women, but women to men and women to women and men to men. That, that violence seems to be a human characteristic. I would imagine, though, that the violence is not nearly as often lethal when it's female to male than as it is male to female. Yes. The actual incidence of violence going in those two directions may not be that different, actually. But the seriousness of the violence, the consequences of the violence tend to be greater male to female violence than the other way around. 
And the effects I imagine are different. For women to be with a violent husband or partner would be terrorizing, whereas the other way around might be demoralizing rather than terrorizing. It could be terrorizing the other way too. I've certainly read of cases where a man was terrorized by his wife, and that, that certainly can happen. I think it happens more often in the other direction. And historically, women have been economically dependent on men, which meant they were more likely trapped in that kind of situation. They did, had fewer options for leaving, and they have more now because we have domestic violence shelters and so on. But it's been very uh, difficult for women often to leave those situations. Yeah, and I'm sure that's the main explanation for the rapid rise in divorce rates that happened 30 or 40 years ago is because women could now leave. That very likely is the case. Women, but women still are economically disadvantaged. And I think, and very often, I don't know the statistics on this, but very often when a woman leaves, if she has children, she's leaving with her children and she's earning a lot less money than her husband, and it's very difficult. And if she has primary responsibility for the children, which is often the case, that would make it even more difficult to leave. Yes. It's only been relatively recently, historically speaking, that women have been organizing for equal rights and equal opportunity. And we hear in the news that there's a move to finally pass the Equal Rights Amendment, even though that's not probably not going to happen. So starting perhaps with the fight for women's suffrage uh, a little over a century ago, both here and elsewhere, what made the moment ripe for that and for later developments in the 60s and 70s, for instance? I really think in the 60s, one of the things that made the moment ripe was medical technology and the advent of easy, easily accessible contraception made a huge difference to women. They did not have to worry so much about having children that they did not plan for. And that meant they could plan a different kind of life. I think many of us, I will say that when I was growing up, the message to me and to the other girls that I knew was, you have to find something you can do to support yourself in case you ever have to maybe you should get trained as a secretary or something like that, that you can move in and out of easily. But as soon as you have children, then you'll put that aside and you might go back to it later when your kids grow up. But that was the message that we got. And there was a huge change in that as I was reaching young adulthood. So the idea that having children is now optional, or at least when to have them is, is optional. And so that's a very specific change that led to other changes. Yes. Yes. I think that's one of the main things that, that led to these changes. Mm -hmm. now, now at this point, it's taken almost as a given for both men and women that women are, are not just are just not suited for certain activities and professions. That assumption has, has really gone by the wayside. Nearly all of those assumptions have been disproven one after the other, whether it's politics, medicine, law, even positions in the military. What, what would you say would be the cutting edge of, of those changes, or, or have we reached the end? Is it now the case that anything is within a woman's reach to do, except perhaps, let's say, being a firefighter, you have to be a particularly strong woman. It's not like any woman, but that's true for men too. Not any man could be a firefighter. Yeah, I think we have reached 
the point where almost it's hard to think of some profession where people still think absolutely women can't do this. There'll be some women who can do it. So that's in that sense, I think we've reached the edge. But on the other hand, there are still so few women in some places that I think there's a, still um, quite a bit of, of change ahead. I think it's also interesting that there are some things that we don't think that men should do as much as women. Yeah, and I think that's those assumptions maybe are, are more rigid even than the other way around. So for instance, being a man working in preschool, that I think people would worry. It's not just that the man, that there wouldn't be enough men interested, but I think the parents would be would be worried about that. So is this is this a pedophile, for instance? I think that's a barrier that faces men who are interested in those professions. So both genders have barriers like that that they have to confront, and they have to do with the expectations that people have for women and men. So one of the things that I used to think was a big barrier for women was airline pilot. Now we do see women in piloting planes, but it's still pretty rare. If you get on a big intercontinental jet for the voice that comes over saying, this is your pilot speaking, it's very rare for it to be a woman. And so I guess the question is how much of that is discrimination and how much of that is self-selection? And that's hard it's, to tease out, I would think. It's hard to tease out. Um, I think it's both, actually. And But the problem is, even the self-selection is hard to disentangle from discrimination because starting very early on, we get messages about what might be a good idea for us and what might not be a good idea for us. And people encourage you along the way and you may end up making choices. All of us make these choices. If you were in a totally neutral environment, you might've made a different choice. You allude to this in your book, but I think one of the really kind of pithy examples of discrimination is in the classical music world. There was a female trombonist applying to, to be a member of a major symphony and she was rejected. And I guess she must've protested the, the rejection and somehow it was arranged that the, the candidates would all play behind a screen. And whereas the first take, when they saw who was playing, they, they didn't think that she played in a strong or forceful enough way. But when she was behind the screen, it was just fine. And that's another example of kind of an implicit bias. I don't think that the evaluators were deliberately or consciously discriminating. They actually heard her playing as less virile <laughs> than they did the second time when they didn't know who was playing. And that, and that led to uh, auditions now being always behind the screen when it's a major audition like that. Right. I think that, and that is an important point that a lot of the time there is no deliberate attempt to discriminate on the basis of gender or sex, but we've all learned so well what to expect that those biases kick in and we don't even realize we're doing it half the time maybe more than half the time. So let's talk more about the, the fear of change and maybe we'll ease into the more contentious topics eventually this way. Uh, you, you quote uh, Pope Francis, who's I think considered a quite a liberal Pope. He's a you know, progressive if, as much as a Catholic Pope can, can be. Can be, yeah. Yeah, and he was quoted as saying that uh, gender theory was an attack on the family. Gender theory 
not just gender change, but even talking about it. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what he meant by gender theory when he made that comment, but yes, the idea that somehow questioning it is dangerous is difficult. And I know that the, there is a theological approach that suggests that God wanted women to be a to handle certain things and men other things and that's just the way it is and if we want to be good people we have to follow those rules but yeah i think people change is always scary any kind of big change is scary but we seem to manage it generally speaking eventually some of us do <laughs> it does seem to be a pretty big divide between people who are excited by these changes not not just tolerant but actually excited by them and people who find these changes very threatening and one of the ideas that you you uh, talk about in your book is that there's a fear that maybe the progress for women will be androcentric you know, that that females will take on masculine characteristics and lose their feminine characteristics and who's going to be the support now <laughs> that kind of problem that, that there's skepticism that women can be both masculine stereotypically in the work world but then come home and be the supportive nurturing flexible person at home that there's a word that whole set of characteristics will be represented by no one that concern, it's a legitimate concern in the sense that these are important characteristics. But one of the things that people don't seem to think through when they worry about that is that men also have those characteristics. And there are a lot of men who are capable of tenderness and gentleness and supportiveness and so on. And we can reinforce those qualities in boys and uh, make sure that all of us are able to be compassionate and empathic as well as task focused and assertive and so on and i'm <laughs> we talked about androgyny you and i earlier when we first um, discussed this interview and that idea is rooted there and even though we don't talk about androgyny anymore very much in psychology um, it is a combination it means a combination of masculine and feminine qualities but the valuable thing in that whole idea is that all of us have the potential for these different kinds of qualities and we've reinforced one set in one group and one set in another group but we don't have to do that yeah and, and it seems pretty obvious that people all the time are acting differently in different settings it doesn't seem like that big of a stretch to be one way at work and another way at home I and mean, i think most people do that Yes, all of us do it. At, and when I have taught my social psychology class, one of the things we wrestle with is, who are you really? Who is yourself? What's your true self? And we realize that's a very hard thing to sort out because you are different in different contexts. And you truly are different. You're not necessarily putting on an act in this situation and you're really you in the other situation. Yeah, there may not be a pure self in any setting. We're always embedded in, in, in a social interaction. Probably even when we're alone. <laughs> we're just because we're imagining being with other people. So I'm wondering, I don't think this is in, in the book, the, the one that I read of yours, which is uh, Gender, the Basics. Is there any research about the social dynamics in work settings that are predominantly female, as in, for instance, daycare settings versus settings that are predominantly male versus settings that are 
mixed because I think there's been a lot of research where, where the setting is mixed that women are often feel dominated by the men or the men are much more often in leadership roles. But what about situations where it's, it's natural for a woman to be in the leadership role? Are the dynamics all that different in terms of its flexibility and supportiveness and is it a nurturing environment or is it just as, as competitive and cutthroat as anywhere else? I think it certainly can be. I don't even know if we can make a generalization like that. It probably depends on what the work situation is, but I've certainly observed lots of women being cutthroat and so on, and it's not that women in a group are not capable of that, yes. Yeah, obviously this would be a statistical question. Are, are women, when women are in leadership over other women, do they tend to be, or are they more often supportive than a, than man would be in a, of course, it's not the same situation because there are different kinds of work too. So it's really, it, it, I think that's one thing, take home message maybe from this whole topic is that it's so darn complicated. Yes. So many variables. Here's the, one of the complications is that women in some settings, if they've really had to fight hard to get to the top, may feel they don't want people to think of them as the first woman or the woman doing this job. They want to think people to think of them as the expert or the top person. And they may not emphasize the fact that they're women and they may not want to spend energy helping other women reach that same level. Um, so they may be caught up in that struggle and feel not like helping other women. Whereas in other situations, women might be very, and I've seen this certainly too, my, women might be very supportive of women, junior women coming up and try their best to help them and mentor them and so on. I don't know if we can make a generalization. We have a term colorblind. Some people have a dream, Martin Luther King, that someday the society will be colorblind and we just won't notice the color of the skin as meaning anything. But we don't seem to have a term genderblind, do we? <laughs> I've actually heard people use that, but it's usually in the context of something like the example we were talking about, playing your audition behind a curtain for the orchestra, being blind to the person's gender in that moment don't want to get rid of gender I, I will say uh, my I, I always get a kick out of my students when I talk about this but years ago Ursula Le Guin wrote this wonderful novel in which the people were they didn't have a sex or a gender they were just people and then once a month their sex hormones would kick in and they would become either male or female they would have a sexual relationship, then they would revert back to being neutral. And my students were so uncomfortable listening to this. One of the interesting things was you never knew whether you were gonna turn female or male during that time. So you could get pregnant, for example, or you could father a child and the same person could do both and it wasn't predictable. But, but there was a sound effect when it happened. Surprise. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but the, my students, hated the idea of A, the unpredictability, and B, the neutral part of it. Like they just thought life would be so boring if there was no gender, if everybody was just neutral. What would you find to talk about? They were saying, how would you interact with people? 
Yeah, because it does feel so basic. I, I have a proposal that's a little bit less radical than Ursula Ursula Le Guin, and that's that once a year or so that each of us wake up and we're the other gender, just to know what it's like. Yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> and that, that might do a lot to diminish sexism. Yes, it might. But yeah, I think people are pretty invested in gender, partly because it, it helps your interactions to be predictable, even though they're, they're really not predictable but it makes you feel as if at least in some ways you can predict something. So I have a question about the kind of the nature nurture debate. Of course, that's impossible to tease out. Presumably both of them are occurring. Is there some sense that maybe the differences between men and women as groups are statistical? Maybe women are as a group somewhat more prone to be interested in such a, certain topics or certain activities or certain roles or certain professions and men the other. And that's so if you had absolutely zero discrimination, if you could do a sort of a, a mental experiment, a thought experiment, that you still would have, let's say, engineering would still be, let's say, 65% male and childcare would still be a majority, but not necessarily a huge majority female. Is that an okay thing to say, as opposed to the idea of like equity, meaning that you always look at the statistics and until it becomes 50-50, there's an assumption of discrimination? That's a really tough question, because as I mentioned briefly earlier, that discrimination is so embedded in, in so many ways in our lives that if you talk about self-selection, it's, it's hard to know how much of it might be because nobody ever talked to you about this alternative, and they didn't talk to you about it because you were female or because you were male. You know, they just, it, it just didn't come up. But I do think it's certainly feasible that it would turn out that if you ever could figure this out, that it wouldn't be 50-50. Yeah, it might very well be that women clumped a little more in one area and men in another area. Now, I don't know how we'll ever find that out, but it would be interesting. We're not gonna find out probably ever but at some point we're going to have to be satisfied, right? So if let's say at the point when 40% of engineers are women, do you then say, okay, this is good. This is good. This is good enough. We don't need to keep pushing to make it more equal. That's a, again, that's a really hard question because it means, what do you mean by pushing? Like you're talking maybe affirmative action or those kinds of. Well, like affirmative action is one possibility. Another is just Simply encouraging girls more, making sure that girls are encouraged to, to like math in grade school, things of that sort. And there are all, all sorts of ways that fall short of, of any kind of coercion. Yeah. I think if you, I think what you need to keep pushing for is total equality of access and opportunity. And I don't think that's easy. I think people are always thinking we've made it now. Little girls can look up and they can see that women have gone into space, for example, which is terrific, but it just it doesn't mean that we have total equality of access and opportunity. And I'm not sure how we know when we've reached that point. <laughs> so that's one of the conundrums of the topic, I think, is that it, there are so many things that are essentially unknowable. Yeah. That's one of the things that makes it so fascinating for me, is that, actually. 
So let's talk now about gender identities. This is getting into the more fraught area lately, lately for several years now. It seems to me that there are multiple aspects to gender identity. There's the private internal feeling. Then there's acceptance within, for instance, the trans community, whether it's binary or non-binary trans. And then there's the acceptance by the wider culture. So trans women, for instance, in sports is a contentious example. An example in the other direction would be, let's say, an indigenous culture's veneration of an, an androgynous shaman as a culturally norm, normative and positive role to, to take. It seems to me you have some private, and then you have public within one's group, and then you have public with the out group. And where I think it's becoming really contentious is, of course, in the last category. But the other two, I think, are important to recognize, too, it seems to me. And part of the issue is we don't really understand any of the levels, really, but we don't understand the private, the core private gender identity. We don't actually know everything we need to know about how people form a gender identity. What we know is that most people form an identity that's congruent with the sex they are assigned at birth. But we also know that some people don't, and that the origin of that seems it seems to happen very early for many people, although not everybody. And exactly why is very puzzling, because we have, if you think about how biological sex comes about, it comes about in a series of stages. Okay, you have chromosomes, then you have gonads, you have hormones, you have internal reproductive tract, you have external genitalia, and those things happen one, two, three, four, as the fetus is developing. And at some stage for some people, that doesn't proceed in a nice, neat direction. It doesn't go in an all male direction or all female direction. So you get people who are born with biological characteristics of both sexes, intersex individuals, and yet many of those people who have somewhat ambiguous biology do form a very stable gender identity as male or female. And on the other hand, people there are people whose biology seems to be totally congruent with male or female, but whose gender identity is different from that. Yeah, so if we could just sort of tease that out a little bit. So the intersex situation, and, and my understanding is that the default for development is is going to be female, unless there's enough testosterone in utero to turn the fetus male, usually. And so in those situations, you have intersex, and that sort of, in a sense, proves that there's at least some portion of the population, not large, maybe, I don't know how many percent, it's a low percentage, but it's not nothing of intersex. And that means that there aren't just two genders, at least that. Yes. Yeah, but then it gets much more contentious with the other example that you gave where biologically, there's nothing to point in the direction of anything but one gender, the classical gender. Nothing that we know of, nothing that we... Nothing that we know of. And it may be something subtle in the brain. It would be very subtle. So that that's the other part of it. And, and, and also, I just want to mention about your expression that you used assigned at birth, sex assigned at birth, that's become a contentious phrase. 
because people say, what do you mean assigned to birth? You're either male or female biologically or intersex. But I think what you're getting at is in addition to the biological designation, there's also a whole set of assumptions that get put onto the child starting very young. My, my son was, was uh, born in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and that was a very progressive place. So they didn't put pink or blue caps on the newborn infants, they put yellow caps on everybody. <laughs> but that was atypical at the time. This is 32 years ago. There's a tendency to start treating infants, even as newborns differently, depending on their gender that's a, that they're assigned in the sense that they're assumed to be because maybe because that's what they are biologically, but also there's this whole overlaying of expectations. And in fact, there's even some research that shows that before birth, when parents know the sex of their baby-to-be, they start to describe the baby differently if they are expecting a male or a female. So it starts even before birth, this different set of expectations. When I say assigned at birth, when the child is born, generally they look at the genitalia and they say it's a boy or it's a girl. It seems it's so basic, but yet with an intersex baby, that may be difficult. And one of the interesting things about our culture and many other cultures is we really feel very strongly that a person has to be one or the other. The doctor is not going to say most of the time to the new parents, congratulations, you have a new baby, a new intersex baby. Right. You're going to have, you have a baby boy or a baby girl. And they, the doctor may actually make a pretty subjective decision about that if the, if the genitalia look ambiguous. Yeah, and I think surgically it's easier to uh, create female genitalia than male. And, and of course, the intersex situation is almost always male, not always, but if it's because there wasn't enough testosterone and it's XY, then it's easier to turn the baby into a, a female with female genitalia. Of course, there are other situations where XXY and there's other variants. So many. <laughs> but I think probably, I don't know if it's the most common, but one of the more common ones is it's XY chromosomes, but female genitalia or close to it. And then the, the surgeon will recommend to the parents that let's just raise, you could just raise the child as female and the, the gender identity isn't really formed for the first couple of years anyway, so it'll be fine. And it's been actually, there've been quite a few interviews recently with people who grew up from that situation. And some of them eventually realized, if, if I can use the word realized, or came to the conclusion that they felt more male and they resented having that decision being made for them as infants. They didn't get permission. Of course, how could they? <laughs> yes. And that's one of the many complications of this whole situation and the line between male and female it can be blurry yes for most people it's not but it can be blurry and yet we don't have any mechanism for allowing a person to be in that category really not easily so one of the things that i think is contentious right now is the blurring of the notion of biological sex with gender fluidity. That I, I think until fairly recently, there was an idea that there were these two different categories, one of which was 
more dichotomous except in the intersex situation. But then gender was the, was the really fluid thing depending on social influences. But now it seems to me that at least on the left, there's a kind of a assumption that sexuality, it's not, not just sexuality in terms of sexual orientation, but sexual gender identity is so much more important that there is no kind of biological sex worth talking about. I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I, I, that's the feeling I get. And that that's there's been a lot of pushback against that. And, and, and I, I almost feel as if that's like setting oneself up to be so fuzzy about those distinctions. Yeah, I again, I think I come back to the idea that we don't really understand gender identity that and I think we are in a place where we've for the last few decades, we've been questioning gender roles that are women really just like this and men really just like that? That's been a big issue. But now we're in a place where a lot of people are thinking, why do I have to choose? <laughs> why do I have to be one or the other? And people are, in a way, I don't mean to trivialize it, but they are playing with gender. Let's try this. Let's try this. And that can be healthy. But I don't know. Biology is pretty important still. <laughs> I'm a social psychologist, so I'm, my bias is toward the importance of, of social context and nurture and so on, rather than biological, have everything biologically set. But yeah, there are some biological differences that are pretty hard to escape. Yeah, I think you're getting at something there where there's a kind of a playing with the whole conceptual framework, a kind of challenging of it and almost to trying to say, okay, let's just assume that we've already reached the stage of a gender blind society and go ahead and just treat me as a person. It's, it's doing something similar to what the kind of interest in, in androgyny did 30, 40 years ago. Then it's, instead of each person having the capacity for the whole spectrum of attributes, and instead let's just do away with the whole distinction altogether. Yes. Yeah. And that's really hard to get your head around and I'm still getting my head around it in certain ways and there are certain things I don't feel comfortable with and I don't agree with but we, we think of like in our society we divide so many things by gender just think of the academy awards this is an interesting example we have awards for best actor best actress in every category and I think some uh, non-binary actor won one of those awards this past time, but I forget what it was. But on which side? <laughs> the non-binary, which side do you get? Do you get both? But and I thought, why do we even have them divided up like that? It's not like sports, actually. It's acting. How you, why would you have a category for males and for females? That doesn't really make any sense. And there's probably a lot of other areas like that where we make a distinction that isn't necessary at all, and we should be just treating people as persons. Yeah, an example of where I think that progress, if we can use that word, has happened is on NPR, All Things Considered. I think for a while there, there was an attempt to have one male and one female announcer. And now you sometimes have two men, sometimes you have two women, it doesn't matter. So it is possible in certain settings. Another interesting setting, and this is not to do with gender identity, but more gender inclusivity, that um, I'm a big fan of American Ninja Warrior. 
and they have women and men both competing on this insane obstacle course. They both compete together and they do give a little after every competition. Uh, they have a minimum number of women that get to advance the best of the women and even though they're often not haven't quite reached the level that the men reached but they've set up something where women and men are quite comfortable competing with each other on the same course and it's, uh, i think it's great interesting okay i have one last question and i think that's all we have time for and that's the question of women's space this is something you, you get to in your book just very briefly that in the history of, of the women's movement, there's been an importance to having a women's only space. I think the assumption would be that if men were included in those spaces, there wouldn't be the level of trust and openness and safety, and that it was a, at least necessary at the time. Maybe it's become somewhat less necessary in certain ways, but nevertheless, they still exist. Certain consciousness raising groups, for instance. And the question is who determines and what determines whether someone is a woman in order to stay in those spaces. And that's a really tricky, tricky question. I've heard of some groups where it's anyone who is at least not identifying as a man. <laughs> you know, they can identify as a woman, as, tra as a trans, uh, if they're M to F, that's fine. If they're F to M, but they haven't gone all the way, that's fine. Anything that's not definitively a male self-identity. What, what are your thoughts on that? You're right. It's a very tricky question, and it might depend on the nature of the space and who is in it. I think there are some particular spaces where women might feel especially vulnerable, that they might be more resistant to anybody who, whose background is male, even though she now identifies as female and is living as a female. I think this is something that women are struggling with, actually. Feminist organizations are struggling with and trying to be inclusive and trying yet not to pull the rug out from under the feeling of safety and shared experience that women have found in these kinds of spaces. So I don't really have an answer for that, but I just think you, you put your finger on it. It's an extremely contentious and tricky issue. Okay, that's what you, that's the most definitive thing you could say <laughs> about this topic. All right, so I'm just wondering with the last moments here, if you could just uh, put on your Sears glasses or look into your crystal ball and uh, if you could give any kind of predictions about what might be coming next, if, if anything, in this whole transition, societal transition, I should say. I think, we will continue to try to de-emphasize the distinctions between what women and men can, should, and so on do. And we may even de-emphasize the differences between women and men. That is, we may have more sense of uh, people choosing to express a gender that is more neutral and that despite the discomfort that people feel when they look at somebody and they can't tell if the person is male or female that may become much more normal so we'll see 
To, to connect this with my uh, next interview is going to be about quantum physics. So maybe there's some kind of superposition that people can have that spin up and spin down at the same time, male and female at the same time. <laughs> it's a quantum phenomenon. Anyway, thank you so much, Hilary Lips, Emerita Professor in Social Psychology at Radford University, the, the founder of the Center for Gender Studies and the author of several books on the topic. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.